Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business and the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. This episode was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic. And although the world has changed a great deal since then, we hope that this episode will be just as interesting and relevant as when we first sat down. This is an episode about the future of plastic, responsible innovation and biohacking. And my guests today are Neil Dunn and Dr. Siobhan Gardner. Neil is the chief executive of Polymateria, the British company developing biodegradable and compostable plastics. And Siobhan is the climate change and environment lead at Deloitte. And she's working on a very exciting new sustainability studio. We'll talk about everything from green unicorns to ice cream. We'll meet the driving force behind the Tesla of plastic and a doctor on a mission to bring the value of science to those who need it most. And we'll hear how both of my guests travelled from a field on a farm to the boardrooms of some of the biggest companies in the world. Let's get to the conversation. Thank you for tuning in. Neil, Siobhan, welcome. Good to be here. Now, am I introducing you for the first time? Have you met before? No, we have not met before. Well, we've met virtually via Twitter and other platforms, it seems, but uh, not in person. Well, I have you in front of me today. You have such interesting and varied careers, both of you. I'm going to quiz you both about how you got started. But Siobhan, I can't overlook the fact that you were an ice cream global designer. That was part of it. What, 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 what? It sounds like Willy Wonka. What was that then? It is a real job. Being an ice cream scientist is actually a real job. And is it? When you, uh, when you go into a school to do outreach and you tell the kids, yeah, you know, I'm an ice cream scientist, there is a look of wonder uh, in the room, which is, which is awesome. Um, but no, it was, it was very much about looking at how we um, design ice cream and look at flavours in a way that, that is sustainable. And it sort of set the course for me, I think, over subsequent years. But it was very much about how do we get the most and get the, get more from less when it comes to things like cocoa and vanilla and all yes. these other delicious things. Um, and do it in a way that also produce some really great, great tasting uh, products as I well. I love it. Well, speaking of pods, Neil, welcome to the lens. Uh, I have images of you on a running track, racing around an 800 metre runner, a 400 metre hurdler. You're still active? I, just to clear my head, really, I, 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 I jog as opposed to run these days. I think... Um, those days are well behind me at this stage. <laughs> well, you are very active. You're a very, very active uh, CEO. And I'm always interested, actually, on how anyone uh, clears their head. Let's take you back to the start. Neil Dunn, your first ever job. Um, I'm a farm boy. So I don't know if I actually got paid for it, but I definitely spent a lot of my summers in Ireland drawing in silage. So on a Massey Ferguson or a, a Ford before right. they became New Holland with a big trailer of grass behind me. Wow, this um, is a feast for all the senses, I can already tell. It, it was a proper Irish countryside job. Yeah. Um, and I think if you've... Uh, if you've handled the stress of, of bringing 18 tonne of corn to the mill uh, when the trailer is, is leaking and you don't even have a driving licence or insurance and a big line of cars behind you, uh, I think it's a really good uh, grooming for a, you know, a, a CEO job. Well, it, it absolutely is, except we go from the fields, the, the fragrant fields of Ireland 
to an ideas company, Saatchi and Saatchi. How, how does that happen? Well, it was all on the sustainability continuum. So sustainability was growing up, uh, started before that in Accenture as a, a you know, um, initially risk management yeah. and then spotting the opportunities associated with that. And your grad program Accenture? Um, I was, yes, I was yeah. a grad program Accenture, yeah. So um, I actually owed so much money from trying to run around running tracks that I needed to get a job in a, in, in a place that actually paid me well. Yes. So I'd learned from drawing in silage that doesn't pay anything. So Accenture paid me well and we set up the sustainability practice while I was there and that really evolved and grew and now it's gone on from strength to strength. But what was compelling about Saatchi was the power of brands and big ideas. Um, we did things like launch the Prius with Toyota, we um, Pampers One Pack, One Vaccine initiative with, with UNICEF, the early days of calls marketing, uh, some amazing employee engagement work with Adam Werbach and others at, at Walmart. Mm. And then we um, were the global lead agency for Vestas, the wind energy company as well, which is really all about creating a movement uh, for wind energy globally. So some really exciting stuff. It sounds um, a very deliberate move. Why did you want to work with sustainability then? I mean, in, in a sense, it was ahead of the time. I think, you know, um, always saw business as an amazing platform for change. Um, you know, I, I didn't see uh, government or, or maybe um, NGOs as, as being, you know, the right platform for me. And I, I really liked the kind of ability that businesses have to to innovate and to create kind of new technologies and new solutions to to the world's you know biggest problems and um I just had no clue how to actually do that and the reason Accenture was such a compelling first step was they talked about change and how do you change businesses, change supply chains, change environments and cultures um to to be more resilient and to to be more future proof. Um, so those skills were were something I, I realised I, I needed to to be effective, and uh, it was you know the first ten years of my career was was spent learning how to do that. So I sometimes wonder how a uh, a change maker, sometimes impatient change maker, presumably gets on in larger organisations. So we might explore that because a next role was the head of sustainability at BT, a global brand, a household name. Reflecting on that chapter, what were you most proud of? I think that we made the most of the opportunity. We absolutely maximised that period of time. The digital inclusion programmes and the growth that went along around re reaching hard to um, uh, reach areas of, of the UK by a much deeper understanding of the social problems and what was holding people back from getting online and bringing that into um, the fibre rollout programmes of the business and then subsequently 4G with, with the acquisition of EE. So I think that train set and that period of time at BT was an incredibly um, powerful way to deliver growth and impact at the same time. Of course, we're now going to talk about polymateria, but I'm always interested in the origin of how you cross paths. Well, I think the issue finds you first. I think Siobhan would probably speak to this as well. When you are very passionate about a particular issue, the people who are really fixating on it, obsessing about it, tend to be standing there waiting for you. And when plastic pollution started to become um, the nexus issue that it is, and when David Attenborough in October 2017 kind of made it the populist issue that it is today, there was no real silver bullet. There was no Tesla. There was no um, uh, Patagonia. There was nothing we could kind of point to and say, and that's the solution. Um, so the founders of Polymateria, Jonathan Seif and Lee Davy Martin, we know each, we knew each other. Um, they were in a, a similar space where they were really obsessing about what the solution would be to this problem. They knew that there needed to be a really strong bedrock of science that 
basically didn't exist. Um, and they were starting to get some really exciting results through on the innovation side of the business, but they wanted somebody to come in and lead it. They wanted somebody to come in and, and scale it. Um, so I just thought there was a really exciting opportunity. Um, and honestly, the world needs more polymaterials. It needs more Teslas. It needs more practical things that we can point to to say, look, growth can happen. You can become a unicorn and you can deliver clean or social impact into the world as a consequence of doing that. Right. But it's a very different way of running a business. Right. And I've seen polymaterial described as the Tesla of plastic, in a sense. You're doing things very differently. I mean, we're very used to the mantra reduce, reuse, recycle. But you've added another thing to that. So tell us what the next R you've added is and let's get to the nitty gritty of what polymaterial does. Redesign. We've redesigned plastic. So with the combination of polymer science, biology and chemistry, we've looked at specifically polyorophans, so the most highly littered forms of plastic. 32% of all plastic winds up in a natural environment. Ironically, polyorphans are a very pure material. Nobody before we had come along had figured out how do you actually return them to nature without creating any problems from an ecotoxicology perspective, but also microplastic. So the kind of the cornerstone of our IP is knowing how to do that. The other thing is time controlling it. So if you do create a biodegradable solution for the most highly littered form of plastic, you obviously don't want it going off in supply chains. You don't want it going off in people's homes. Right. So being able to actually mask the technology for a period of time and then when it's triggered that it will return to nature without any problems is the cornerstone of everything we do. Right. So in very basic terms, for my benefit, uh -huh. we're talking about redesigning a new type of plastic yep. which degrades in a way that doesn't harm the planet. Mm -hmm in a way that current plastic doesn't, obviously, mm -hmm. which sounds so important and so simple, we've got to ask, why isn't this being done already? And why isn't every maker of plastic bottles already doing it? We're only five years old. Um, we spent four of those years in R&D. Uh, what existed before us was either scientifically not credible, so claiming biodegradation but just merely fracturing plastic, so taking plastic and making microplastic, or claiming biodegradation but they actually need industrial composting facilities for it to work. So one's not credible, one's not scalable. So and your point is this will degrade in any environment? In the open environment, when it winds up in the natural environment, just like any other you know, um, biocompatible or biological material, being able to kind of fully assimilate because our technology uses something called prebiotics to mimic and, and draw in the natural agents of decay so that nature now sees it as something it can attack and colonize and then fully assimilate. So as well as being formidably smart, you have huge ambition. Where are you today and where do you want to be tomorrow in the biggest sense? So we started commercializing in the last year. We've been really selective about who we're rolling the technology out to because the whole system end-to-end -end needs to work together successfully. So this is, I think, one of the key things that anybody who's building you know, a green unicorn like a polymateria needs to carry in the in the cost of their business and in their uh, vesters hopefully have support for these types of disruptive approaches. So for us, this means everything from how you work together to get the consumer education right, because this is obviously a new material, a new way of thinking about plastic, but we want to empower the consumer. We don't want to confuse them with claims of biodegradability and composting and encourage littering. We want to take something they understand, like use by dates or specifically recycle by dates and say, you have this, use it, recycle it by this date. But then if it winds up in the natural environment, it will biodegrade. We need brands who can kind of communicate that and using agencies like McCann and BBH and others to, to get that right. But right through to the back end, new standards. We're working with the British Standards Institute to create a new standard. 
to create new goalposts because we want other innovation to emerge that properly solves this problem. And I do see a link here with Tesla in the sense of actually unleashing some of these inventions, these innovations. Would you, would you call that open sourcing in a sense? How, how does that actually work? I think the reason that um, Tesla has been a successful case study for us, and and uh, two years ago when I when I mentioned that, I had a lot of investors saying to me, "Well, hang on a second, that's not necessarily a financial success. I'm not sure we want to be associated with um, with that particular business." And I said, "No. Well, actually, the the framework which which he is applying and the way he is taking a very disruptive mindset to taking on the internal combustion engine, but you." Using um, um, you know things that will shake up the system, so an infinite mile warranty, which gives the customers confidence, but also translates that into the supply chain, into innovation that comes from the crowd, as opposed to the supply chain that maybe sat behind the internal combustion engine. So I think all of these disruptive things that he has done are now translating into an incredibly valuable business, and he himself, as a leader, has also seemed to have weathered the storm and the stresses that he is kind of going through. So. So um, I think Tesla is a very good case study for us because that that knowledge of how you disrupt the system end to end and knowing where the real leverage points are in the system, not a lot of businesses know how to do that. In a polymateria, that's what we're trying to build. Right. And it's great to hear a British company talking in these ambitious, ambitious terms. Quite right. To Siobhan, we're talking about the marriage of science and business. I wonder how you're uh, reacting to listening to Neil's uh, inventions and, 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 and work. I mean... When we think about plastic waste, it's uh, and this actually came up in an event I was at um, earlier on this week, uh, the conversation about how do you tackle the problem of plastic waste. There's part of it that is very much to do with a future beyond plastic where we look at these um, compostable and home compostable materials, not just the industrial compostable materials that we see on the market right now. But then there is a the question of what do we do with the millions of tonnes of plastic that's already in the environment or moving through um, supply chains towards the environment. Um, and that is like a different technology proposition. It's it's moving away from biology and chemistry, which is also my background too, but moving into the how do we track, aggregate and bring that material out of the environment back into hopefully, you know, a circular economy. But if not, it's dealt with it in the appropriate way. And it's like a, it's a completely different offering. It is. Um, it's a totally different way of seeing yeah. how, how, how to solve the problem. I was going to ask you a personal question, Siobhan, how you got started. Where did it all begin for you? Because you've done so many cool things. Well, I just wonder, uh, where did it begin? It's, so it was, it was nice to hear that you're also a, a farm person. I also, I'm also a farmer's daughter. Um, so, yeah, I grew up on a farm in, in East Sussex, um, a beef farm, although silage was still very much the smell of home. Um, and, uh, yeah, my, my dad being a British beef farmer, my mum being an Indian Hindu vegan from Bangalore. So, you know, ultimately it was being brought into um, a household where that, uh, you know, working with the environment, working with the ecosystem to create business, but also thinking about the ethics and, and morals of uh, of that supply chain as well was sort of part of my growing up. Um, Can you remember when your imagination was first caught by what you would now think of as science? Oh, God. Well, I mean, even from a very young age, every Sunday, um, I'd be watching Natural World on BBC Two. Um, and being outside, uh, and looking at the environment, looking at birds and insects and soils, and being like, "Why? Why does this? Why is this the way it is? Why yes. is this? Why does this bird look off? Um, go after this insect?" And then watching the natural world and trying to um, 
align sort of what I was observing outside with um, actually, uh, you know, the underpinning science and natural history behind that, then I think just set me on a trajectory from about age five, I think, to the point where I am now. But it was it stemmed from that really important science communication element. And you mentioned David Attenborough from from um, Blue Planet 2, um, right, which triggered the whole rapid uh, sort of escalation of the plastic waste awareness. Um to um, the point where, you know, over the course of, uh, sorry, I actually turned 30 last week, um, but over the course of um, 12 years of career to date, um, it was, I was just keep on trying to find ways where I can involve myself with wider um, aspects of sustainability uh, because I do fundamentally feel it is possible to do well in business but also do good for people and planet too. Um, And that's going to continue to be an ethos, I think. And that that curiosity doesn't always translate, does it, to the classroom or to academia? And yet here you are, you're a doctor. So yeah, I'm I'm a biochemist at school. I love biology and chemistry. So I figured I'd do biochemistry at university. It seemed like the logical thing to do. Uh Um, But but, uh, yes, no, my my research, my PhD research was an opportunity for me to um, do the lab work, do the wet chemistry, do the experimentation, um, looking at plants, plant science, plant genetics, but then also um, because of the the structure of the studentship, get out into the real world. I'm definitely a scientist who thinks about impact um, much to the distress of my PhD supervisor, mm. uh, not in terms of publishing journal articles, but in terms of how do I get science into the hands of people and places that need it the most. And that's how I define impact when it comes to science. And so in terms of career progression, through you go through Unilever um, in particular, um, and I'm actually going to speed us forward because you, you've been given this amazing opportunity with Deloitte to create a new unit. So I'd love to hear a bit more about it and some of the early stage ambitions and what, and what drew you to it because you leave one of the world's great companies to do another brilliant, challenging thing. Yeah, so you know, I, I joined Unilever as a, as a student. Um, I used to work for Procter & Gamble before that. So it was like, okay, how can, I, how can I use that science and that product design element and that kind of design thinking, designing out waste, for example, um, as a way to, um, how can I influence the other teams around me to, to push that type of agenda? Um, that being within Unilever was awesome because you're surrounded by um, friends and, and teammates who are, every day building in more purpose into into their work um i think after seven years uh, or six and a half years um i was very much uh, sort of middle of last year at that point where it was like great so far unilever has been my main client uh unilever is rated so highly for sustainability action at scale yeah and we should say forgive me we're yes. talking about the huge manufacturer of everything from dove to ice cream links and magnum <laughs> ice cream and, yeah. and everything else forgive me i'm sure our listener knows that but and remind um, and you know with that uh, they're rated so highly that it just shows that there is a lot of work to do elsewhere um and when this opportunity um at uh, at deloitte arose uh which was very much you know looking at how how do we um at looking at that client portfolio how do we actually not just um advise and strategize but how do we land solutions in market that move businesses towards their goal their climate goals uh, and yes what's, so the new, what's the new group what's the new unit called so it's called the uh, climate change and environment studio uh, within deloitte ventures and uh yes i'm on currently on day 13 so it's it's pretty early days Interesting. So as well as, uh, I don't want to speed you into predicting what it's going to do, but as well as helping land solutions in markets, sounds like there's some concocting going on in a studio. Is that the idea around origination of new stuff? 
This is all about ideation and experimentation. Um, it's a, it's the bit I think I get the most energy from. And, uh, and you know, with that, um, I'm, I'm also fresh into professional services as well. So this is a whole new adventure for me. But every day it's about bringing that science and technology insight into something that, that uh, creates value for, for business. So, Neil, give Siobhan your top piece of advice for thriving in yes, one of please. the big four. I'm all ears. Um, gosh... I think they're amazing places to learn and uh, some of my best friends have persevered a lot longer um, than than I did. I was 10 years uh, in Accenture and I think what it gave me was um, such an important part of the the tool set that I've needed to to succeed. And I think it's, it's beyond just the understanding of strategic thinking and how innovation happens and and you know what you need to do to meaningfully drive culture change in organizations you can you can really amass incredible experience i think on top of that you're also in the front line dealing with the politics so the emotional intelligence that you need to build to navigate the different personalities and the different um just political soft power hard power challenges to try and get big organizations to accept and embrace new ideas I think uh, whether it's Accenture whether it's EY whether it's Deloitte uh, I think they're just amazing places to learn um, because you have invited me Ollie to, to to make this advice I'm not sure I'm the best person to give advice on this one <laughs> I would say don't stay there I'd say get, <laughs> get out get out no, and, no, and, no. And, 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 and lead a business well, and br- put it all into practice in an organization that will that will back you because that's what we don't have oh, we don't we have lots it, of businesses yeah. that um, you're making it sound like she's going down the mine I mean guys it's taking me weeks to persuade her comms team to let Siobhan <laughs> come on this and now we're talking her out of the job I mean come on well I don't think so because <laughs> like you know you, you, you have um, an amazing alumni network you know the, the alumni network of people that go to Accenture um, and I'm just speaking about Accenture because that's my you know that's my alma mater so to speak but the people that you meet who are leading biz, biz businesses who have that grounding in Accenture whether it's Liv Garfield or you know there's such yes. a long list of people who are I now leading businesses Seven yeah. yeah Seven Trent um, and they are incredible leaders um, and they have to thank for that they have a considerable period of time where they've learned their trade in in one in, in one of the big four but you know not everybody can become the the top I don't know who has just taken the CEO role at, at Accenture but um, whoever's at the top you know you you, you know maybe that's for you maybe it's not um, but but I do think we need people to learn in those in those uh, learn new things new ways of doing things and then actually apply it in the world in in new businesses that the decade of delivery which is what the UN are calling for we need that now more than ever right so here's your chart well Siobhan any any response but I've got I'm going to allow you to get your own back now so I know it's just a a point on why I'm excited and I think you mentioned that that kind of wider ecosystem of innovation which is so important and I'm just thrilled to now have access to that to be able to tap into that not just from an alumni network and, and current network but also thinking about the startups thinking about the university PIs thinking about the the clients um, and the alliances that that you know within that ecosystem you know if if you you can create a movement that way um, depending on whatever um, climate action related topic it might be you know there are plenty of people you can get on side um, and that kind of influence both in the public domain and also amongst kind of business leaders this is how change happens 
and the sense of variety of the range of organisations that you're now going to be working with as well really strikes me. When you're at P&G, when you're at Unilever, you saw some amazing and ambitious uh, scale-up companies driven by amazing world-leading science. Piece of advice for Neil around how to, uh, you know, how to get the most out of a relationship with a with a brilliant big firm. So what, what was interesting is that um, the end of last year, I was involved in a mentorship program uh, with um, some SDG facing uh, small businesses. Um, and this was with the uh, Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. And uh, we had this, uh, we actually ran this workshop where it was um, the corporate brain on one side and startups and actually having a transparent dialogue between, you know, what are the expectations on both sides from this conversation? A startup may put everything on the line to appease a big corporate in so doing, be on a runaway train towards kind of, you know, business suicide. At the same time, on the uh, on the corporate side of things, yes, there might be a shiny business proposal in the startup arena, but you know, do the due diligence, understand if this is the right time for you to get involved with them. Neil is nodding. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's sort of fervently nodding. This is, the, <laughs> this is a lesson because you're investing an awful lot in these relationships, Neil. Yeah, no. I think Siobhan is is. I mean, it's it's so um, necessary to have this out in the public domain um, because um, David needs Goliath and Goliath. It needs David, and and coming back to the decade of delivery, it's not the incrementalism of business as usual that's going to get us both the exponential growth and impact that the world needs uh, right now. So it's 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 finding ways that the small and the big can actually work together. Um, but I think the point that you're making around um, chasing the shiny new thing, which a lot of uh, the big businesses, and when I was in BT, I was guilty of this myself. You you like to say we've got our open IDO program. We've got a a hundred different applicants for our new hackathon and we've invested in three. um, And it's something nice to point at, but does it necessarily touch the heart of business as usual? Does it really get the kind of the proper attention and transformation that it deserves? Some organizations, yes, some organizations, no. But I think chasing the, the, the kind of the shiny new things and letting startups think that they've got um, that they're in, a real opportunity yeah. is possibly the biggest risk that a startup will face because you only need four or five of those to waste your time and you're done. Uh, as as a business, whereas four or five of them who will commit not just the R&D resources, but the marketing resources, have the commercial conversations early, do all of those things concurrently and not take 18 months to 24 months to actually make a decision, even a no within six months or nine months is a hell of a lot better than four or five of the biggest businesses in the world taking two years. And I think actually a lot of education on this would be hugely helpful for both big businesses and startups to say, guys, just get to know quicker. Um, and when you do engage, engage all of your functions concurrently. So the more a Unilever or a Nestle or a P&G can take a task force-based approach when they're engaging startups and say, we'll get everyone in a room, we'll get suppliers, we'll figure out every answer to every question. We won't take a sequential, elongated approach to this. Doing which the rounds by emails. Glacial. Yes. <laughs> we will actually do it all together every question and either you get to yes at the end of that or you get to no at the end of that but our commitment to you is six months to product in market or um, you go work with someone else and I think if we had more honesty like that um, you'd find the David Goliath thing being a hell of a lot more effective than it is at the moment. It's a really really important point. Siobhan what would you ask Neil 
about polymateria. How can I get some samples? <laughs> yes, have you brought some? Yes, uh, you know, are there any in your bag? Um, I'm, you know, I'm I, I, I have come unprepared, woefully unprepared. Well, you, listen, usually... go and look on YouTube, <laughs> yeah. on uh, search Neil Dunn polymateria on YouTube and you will see Neil working Actually, his magic. Don't, don't look for me because I'm not the best poster child for the business. <laughs> look, look at Robin Wright, the actress, look at her Instagram feed. What, from and, House of Cards? She, yes. She, and The Princess Bride. She, she has... Um, and Jenny and Forrest Gump. Okay. Yeah. Well, and she has um, profiled the polypropylene cups, the biotransform polypropylene cups that we, we created back in May last year with um, the sustainable development goals yeah. on them. Uh, and she's done a wonderful job. What's, of... the point? What's the thing on timing, by the way? Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about comedy now, but, you know, you said about timing. Yeah. Almost like you could trigger some, it sounds like Mission Impossible. Well, you, you have to. So in, in order for any biodegradable solution not to um, go off when you don't want it to, you have to be able to mask a catalytic technology yeah. like ours for a period of time. Part of our uniqueness is being able to dial that up or dial that down. But one whole lab in Imperial Innovations is dedicated to getting that timing right. And we've leveraged tools and techniques from the automotive industry to actually be as precise as a month. So you'll see the cups that Robin Wright has profiled on her Instagram feed. Actually, if I think, if I remember correctly, was June 2021 was the date at which it lost its structural integrity and started the process of return to nature. So we have deliberately designed those cups to then perform through supply chain, perform in the in-use phase, and ideally they get reused. Well, hang on. I'm going to ask a stupid question now. What, what, is, what if someone's not got the message and my coffee cup starts disintegrating in my hand with hot coffee? I've probably missed the point, but you see where I'm going. It's very similar to use-by dates. So um, I think the confusion that existed around compostability and biodegradability has led us to thinking about how you actually empower the consumer. And one thing that the consumer really does understand is use-by dates. So I think we've we've learned actually from working with some of the biggest brands that we're, we're partnering with that by giving the consumer clarity that this cup or this packaging is yours, let's just say you've um, you have a salad um, and it's in a polypropylene container and a polyethylene lid and you know that that salad is going to go off next Wednesday so if it's still in the fridge on Thursday you're, you're cleaning it out the packaging with our technology in there would probably be programmed not to trigger until six months after that got it so every uh, solution is bespoke we work at the brands to actually figure out what the unique requirements are and we don't have a trigger until after the produce would be consumed yeah it's very sense. clever that's I can see where you I've, want to I've, I've got another question. I've got, I've got, I've got a, sure. a sort of specific question. It, it may be um, maybe something I, uh, might feel to your colleagues, but with um, thinking, just <laughs> Neil's put, like, bring it on. Yes, putting my ice cream scientist hat on oh. for a second. You know, one of the big challenges with uh, recyclable packaging for ice cream is because you tend to have these tubs that are paper on the outside, plastic on the inside. Because when you freeze something all of a sudden, um, you know, you, you need that structural integrity. And if we're talking about, you know, when in the environment is that trigger, that catalytic trigger going to be for the degradation of the packaging, I'm wondering, okay, so if you've solved it for hot drinks, what about the frozen stuff? That's a great question. Our most recent patent is actually for a leapfrog technology to what you're talking about there, which is PE coat of paper. So the issue with PE coat of paper, well, there's many issues, but I think the first is that it's it's almost like playing the role of, of the diesel engine, uh, which is what we had when we kind of rushed out of petrol into diesel, thinking that it was, it was more... Uh, 
carbon efficient. And we didn't realize, again, Tesla was, was just around the corner. And people think that because it, it looks like paper, that it's a better solution to plastic. But as you've rightly identified, it's got polyethylene lining inside of it. And that is uh, the main reason it can't be recycled, regardless of what people tell you who mm-hmm. make that packaging. It cannot. And it has to be incinerated. So it's part of the 14% of plastic that is incinerated every year. If it winds up in the natural environment, yes, the paper will biodegrade, but the polyethylene will be left as microplastic. It's also incredibly expensive. So that was the reason that we created a leapfrog um, technology that will biodegrade in the natural environment. It also can be recycled because it's a mono a mono material. So when it goes into the MRF, it will be identified. Goes into the what? Uh, sorry, the mechanical recycling facility. Right. It can be identified and treated as... Um, its own stream. It won't be seen as a contaminant. And the great thing is we can get it to market cheaper than PE-coated paper today. Okay, so, I've got a question. Can we come and see your lab? Yes, please. Where is it? It's in Imperial uh, Innovations in White City. Down at White City. You're right. all very welcome. C- can I just say, I wish my science lessons had been as interesting as this. You know, life could have been very different. <laughs> okay, so Neil, I have a question for you, which is, I can see you, I hope you don't mind me saying, I can see you running uh, a very large company, you know, a, you know, a, a, a FTSE company. You came out of BT and so on. And uh, I understand you are building um, a scale-up, um, and yet you're, you know, you're in the trenches. It is a small company. So I just wonder if that parallel universe, if that other life draws you, if you can see yourself. The big train set? Yeah. No, I've done it. Um, the CSO role at BT had um, ticked so many boxes for me, but, but what it, it didn't do was provide you with a platform that that could facilitate exponential impact and exponential growth. And no no big business um, is is really capable of of that type of exponential trajectory. They are because of their structures, because of their um, public reporting requirements, because of the way they are owned and governed. Um, they are held back by incrementalism, incremental growth, incremental impact. And actually, if you look at where Uber, Tyrannos, WeWork and others have kind of come from, that exponential trajectory was when somebody came up with a powerful idea and, and was, was you know, empowered to kind of go ahead and, and make it happen. I get it. Your aspiration for polymateria is for it to be, forgive me for putting words in your mouth, a highly valuable company. To what extent is it to be a very large company? Well, I think the model has changed. I don't think the um, the biggest employers in the world are the, the biggest businesses in the world, and that's a trend that's that's only going to continue. I think the bedrock of our business is a really powerful R&D function that is bringing together very diverse scientific disciplines that are looking at this problem differently. Our ability to actually um, execute on those uh, new ideas commercially is always going to be the foundation. It's a licensing business, and licensing business businesses are deliberately set up to scale through others. But what we found ourselves having to do is work across the value chain. So not just outsource how you engage consumers or outsource the standards and the criteria you test to. Having all of that kind of sorted out to make sure that the system can change together means that you need to carry those costs uh, across your balance sheet. But I think we can become the new normal around perishable plastic. I think we can we can really reinvent the way people are thinking about it as long as we pick the right brands, the biggest brands in the world, to go with us on that journey over the next six to nine months. Excellent. We are paging Walmart at this point. Um, Siobhan, I've got a question for you. When I think about studios and labs, I think, forgive me, I think about experiments, 
which by definition sometimes don't work, which leads us to what some would describe as failures. And Facebook famously had their motto, move fast and break things until some stuff got broken. So they changed their motto. So I suppose my question is around responsible innovation, because we need to try new things. And yet some of the consequences of getting things wrong are very damaging. So how can we think about treading this line? Because it's important to experiment. I think we're still very much in an environment where people are scared to fail. Um, going back to that imposter syndrome comment, actually, and also the comment about um, how uh, you know startups doing everything they can to appease a large potential client, um, and I think within the context of kind of corporate innovation, um, there certainly in my previous roles, uh, I've I've often felt how um, the processes and frameworks that exist um, are too risk averse to enable innovation to happen at scale. It's okay to fail. Fail fast, move on. You know, And I think some of the best projects that I've worked on um, across the different science and technology areas that I've had the privilege of being involved with is, uh, you know, design something that looks cool, then find all the ways you can break it. Um, that is part of the design process. Mm, I, I, guess, I guess where I'm hinting at is a bit further down the line. It's okay to fail, but what if it's something we're eating? What if it's something we're having in our house or in our children's hands? These risks are not acceptable risks. No, right? I mean, like, we're in this plastic mess at the moment uh, where design thinking didn't think about those waste streams and the impact it would have on the wider environment 50, 60 years down the line. Yet here we are. Um, that would probably be a failure. Um, of innovation. Okay, fine. Plastic has done amazing things to curb food waste of fresh produce and everything else. But we're now at a point where we need to just remake the wheel when it comes to packaging. And obviously, I'm sitting uh, next to someone who hopefully is going to continue leading the charge. Absolutely. Redesign. So, you know, we could talk for a long time about this thought of responsible innovation. I think, I think, I think we could, but maybe, maybe just a thought on it. I think responsible innovation comes from listening to the academics and the NGOs and the broader stakeholders that you, you maybe consider as an afterthought when you run a traditional business. You have a corporate affairs function and you have a sustainability or a CSR report that keeps them at bay. Whereas I actually think the business of the future needs to do the exact opposite. You need to break the walls of your business down. You need to draw them in. There is important too because your customers will feed you insight but stakeholders give you foresight. Stakeholders will tell you what the future of plastic is. And they will, if they're the right ones, they'll also tell you um, what the pitfalls are, what the unintended consequences are, maybe rushing too soon into PE coated paper, or rushing too soon into aluminium or too soon into glass, or um, when a Tesla of plastic was just around the corner. So I think your stakeholders being part of your innovation, part of how you bring technology to market and that ability to build an organisation that can really... Um, co-create together with them um, is 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 really what what it, it takes to succeed uh, in the decade of delivery. Right, and I think who we involve and when is absolutely uh, fascinating. And certainly part of the reason the lens was created is we felt that by the time someone got to a boardroom, it was almost too late to get them thinking about the future of an organisation. And so uh, it's very very close to our heart. I've got a question for you. It's quick fire because we are limited on our time. Are you ready? Anyone in the world, you can meet them for half an hour for coffee. Who are you going to meet? I have warned you about this question in advance, so don't take pity, listener. They've had a moment to think about it. Yeah, Neil's pointing at Siobhan. Neil's pointing at me. Yes, Dr Gardner, who yes. would you like to meet? Uh, Melinda Gates. Um, over Christmas, I read A Moment of Lift. Yeah. 
And it was wonderful. I mean, in terms of thinking about how um, a simple intervention such as access to uh, contraception uh, uh, for for women, how that all of a sudden becomes a force multiplier for access to education, obviously gender equality and family planning, um, but moreover a a force multiplier to lift the community up. It's like a systems thinking and it's... um, I sort of draw many parallels with that, with how I sort of apply my own thinking in my own work. So over Christmas, it was just like, yes. Yes. If Melinda I could... Gates, co-founder of the Gates Foundation. Yes. Wouldn't that be amazing? I totally agree. And to see what they have planned as well. Exactly. It's on the roadmap. Fascinating. Neil, who would you like to meet? Uh, I think it would be Doug McKillen, the CEO of Walmart. Warm now. Is this for business reasons? Yeah, perhaps? 100%. Well, why aren't you in Walmart already then? Well, we, we've we've actually um, been commercialising for 12 months. So uh, Walmart is definitely one of the businesses that I think could be um, able to work with us end-to-end to actually commercialise this technology all around the world. So if Doug was to say, Neil, can we change the way our customers behave or is our job really just to make our own packaging as responsible as possible? Would you say, Doug, you know, you're out, you're out of your lane there? The really interesting thing about all of these big brands, whether it's Walmart or whether it's a lot of their peer group, they're actually incredibly good at changing consumer behavior. Keith Weed, who we were talking about earlier, CMO of Unilever, the creative firepower that those brands can bring to bear. I mean, we now have... Well, how would they do it? Well, I mean, the biggest brand in the world changed Christmas. You know, Santa Claus used to be a kind of a skinny um, guy in green. <laughs> and green now he's a ch- chubby guy in red. Um, so the power of these brands to create contagion around big ideas, and particularly with big data and behavioral psychology and everything plumbed into it, how you use it for good to shift the world from conspicuous consumption to much more conscientious, much more Mm. collaborative consumption is a different thing. But I think where they're actually strong is in consumer behavior change. Where they need a lot of help is in the guardians of new technology, the NGOs, the the agenda setters, the key opinion formers, the academics. They need you to do a lot of that groundwork to bring them with you. Um, But actually on on consumer behavior change, that there's nobody stronger than the biggest brands in the world. Yeah, very interesting. Now, um, I've accidentally derailed my own quick fire round, haven't I, with that. Uh, Siobhan, a book you would recommend should be more widely known or read? Rob Dunn's Never Out of Season. Mm. So my entry point for working in sustainability was was food security, coming from the farm um, and, you know, studying plant science at an undergrad and postgrad level. Um, it was, you know, how, how do we look at the food system? Um, what mechanisms have we put in place to, again, put us on this road to... Um, potentially, you know, the book argues annihilation when it comes to things like um, crops and the the actual, um, the detrimental impact that we've had by selectively looking at certain attributes within crops um, and how that causes for these some crops to even uh, not exist anymore as a species. So thinking about the Cavendish banana and the Irish potato famine, you know, the history shows us that there's something not quite right here. And um, in that book in particular, it very much um, goes into, in a very accessible way, the story of the scientists that are trying to solve these problems. And I love it and I recommend it to everyone. Brilliant. Never out of season. Well, 
we will link to uh, your recommendation. Thank you, <laughs> Neil. What's on the bookshelf? I, I really can't limit to one. I've tried. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, go with three, but I will be brief. Um, oh, yeah. Big believer like Siobhan in learning from failure. Why did in my case um, big businesses, in particular unicorns, come and go and fail? There's two in that space that people absolutely have to read. One is Super Pumped. It's a new book about Uber, about Travis Kalanick, um, and about the kind of the leadership and cultural failings, but also the the wrong way to bring the world with you when you unleash a new disruptive technology on the world. Uh, and secondly, um, um, Elizabeth, the book about Elizabeth Holmes and, and Tyrannos Bad Blood, which I think John Carew, the journalist, does an amazing job of getting under the skin of, of what lack of integrity in science and technology can actually do when you couple it with an obsessive leadership force that is not values-based. And in particular, the, the kind of the um, willingness of, of kind of Silicon Valley Inc. to drink the Kool-Aid and believe that she was the next Steve Jobs and not see the obvious failings within that within that particular business. So there's two on the on the downside and the upside. Just to fin- finish on a positive note, what General Stanley McChrystal did with the US military throughout uh, his 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 leadership of Allied operations, uh, captured in the book Team of Teams, is the absolute bible in my view. With anybody who's given a job to lead and change not just a business but an entire system, mm-hmm. uh, Team of Teams is very very practical, very relatable. Brilliant. Team of Teams, Bad Blood, Super Pumped. We will link to all of those. Thank you. Now, very briefly, your advice, if you look back at your former self, something you would say, now you know what you know. Siobhan. So I think the point in my life where I needed to listen to myself when I wasn't uh, was probably when I was trying to write up my thesis. You see lots of stats now around how like mental health amongst postgraduates um, is something is an issue that you know is, ha- hasn't really been spoken about until more recently. But certainly, as a final year PhD student, it was all like, oh my gosh, imposter syndrome. There's no light at the end of this tunnel. Does anyone even care about what I'm researching or writing about? And the answer is, yeah, of course. You know, it, it's um, that's why the proposal was there in the first place. That's why it's funded. Um, but I think if I could turn around, sort of three, four years ago, and say, like, you know, cut yourself some slack. Um, and, you know, you are on the road to uh, completion uh, and, and success with the thesis. Um, and also, like, l- listen to the, the people around you. I was very lucky to be supported by some amazing mentors and, and colleagues during my PhD. And they kept on telling me that it's OK and it's fine and don't worry. And everyone feels like this. And I think I just wasn't listening. It yeah. sounds like words of reassurance. Yeah, no, definitely. And when I when I talk to students now... I try and plug that all the time. It's the fact that, you know, we've all been been in this situation. Um, I think the imposter syndrome in particular is like a big one. And uh, yeah, there is there is light at the end. Don't worry, you will submit it at some point. Brilliant advice. <laughs> now, Nia, will you take us back to the boy on the farm, to the young starter at Accenture? Where are we going? What would you say? I'd actually like to pick up on Siobhan's theme there. I think most of the people listening to this podcast will be tuning in because they believe in BITC, they believe in wanting to use business to make a difference. And what can happen, an awful lot of people who come on this this journey is that you you um, you commit to the cause and it's really easy to get incredibly obsessed and and um, adopt almost martyr 
syndrome where you you kind of really put everything on the line to try and push this the, the you know, big things forward um, but you, you forget to take care of yourself which is which is Siobhan's point you forget self-compassion and actually at a point in, in, in my career where I was really kind of taking the blue pill and going down the the rabbit hole um, an assistant That's of a mine Matrix reference it, it was Alice actually oh, was it was Alice? Alice sorry no it's not it's <laughs> it, right. is it is Matrix, Matrix. it is it Matrix, is the Matrix. You're right. yes, it, no, just checking I'm getting my, <laughs> for some of our older listeners that, that could be taken the wrong I'm way getting, but, but uh, um, uh, friend of mine pulled me aside and said, you know, you, you you actually cannot show compassion to anybody else unless you show compassion with yourself first, you know. So that, that sense of taking care of yourself first. And I found that incredibly important because you take on more responsibility, more pressure. I remember, remember Gavin Patterson, who was my mentor at BT, saying no matter how much you're prepared as the CEO, successor and the board are grooming you and everything else, when you're dropped into a CEO position, nothing prepares you from the pressure that you face. And it's 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 like Brownian motion, everything coming at you from, from all angles. And the only thing that sustains you is that ability to um, have a, a place in a way of, of kind of staying true to yourself, staying connected to yourself and, and maintaining the discipline of doing those things. And then you can be your best self. Then you can lead from a very human perspective and you can bring people with you. But if you, if you compromise in those things, um, the wheels come off the wagon very quickly. Brilliant advice. I'd just like to say a huge thank you, Dr. Siobhan Gardner, Neil Dunn. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks very much. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskater, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.